One philosopher put it best when he said to live is to suffer. None of us like it, but we all know that it's true. To live is to suffer. Augustine said that God had one son on earth without sin, but never one without suffering. To live is to suffer. C.S. Lewis also said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world, unquote. And so friends and neighbors, beloved church family, I tell you as I tell my sons so often that sin and suffering is normal. Suffering in particular is normal. To live is to suffer. Previous generations were uh, more attuned to this reality of the normalcy of suffering, and we need to be more awakened to it. And if you are in Christ, you need to know that when you chose to follow Jesus, you signed up for more suffering. Jesus promised us that. God uses it to rouse your deafness and make you alert to your true home. So this morning we come to Psalm chapter 6. It's a psalm about a Christian sufferer. It shows us not only how to suffer in our faith, but just as importantly, it shows us the God that suffers with us. Two weeks ago, we answered the question, how do Christians sleep while they struggle? Looking at Psalm chapter 4. And then last week, we considered Psalm 5, where we answered the question, how do Christians not swerve from the truth as the nations rage? And this morning, we ask and answer the question from Psalm 6, how do Christians who are deeply troubled find relief as the nations rage around us? Beloved, the Psalms are about life in the covenant. And life is not any more real than when we suffer. So let's dive in and see what the Lord has for us. Three points this morning. Here's the first. How do Christians who are deeply troubled find relief as the nations rage? First point, be honest with God. Be honest with God. Guys, I don't know how or when or why the expectation came in the life of the church that you're supposed to show up here on Sunday mornings and put on some superficial smile. Some plastic smile and act like everything is okay. I don't know where that sort of idea began, but it shouldn't begin here. It shouldn't be here in the life of the church. Remember, this is the place where we believe that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the place that believes that it is through confession that we find healing. This is the place where love is defined by a Savior who hung naked on a tree for sinners. It makes no sense When a church that believes those realities would have a kind of fake it till you make it mentality. It makes sense why this would be the one place where people could be honest about their trials and tribulations. The one place where it should be okay to not be okay. Not only because suffering is common uh, in the world, but also suffering is so common in the scriptures. So common. And we see that in David. Take a look. And if you're new here, what we normally do is just work right through the passage and you'll want to keep that Bible open. Notice how honest David is with God about his suffering. Uh, And also honest with us. And I say us because, again, look at that superscript there. That's important to note, right? This is, once again, another one of those psalms where David is a personal prayer between God and him. However, he hands it to the choir master so that it would be sung corporately. So it's both individual and it's private. It's both instructive and... 
and it's worshipful. So this is a corporate song, as it were. But take a look at how open and honest David is with God and with us. I'll come back to verse 1, but take a look at verse 2. We see David is languishing. That means that he's weak. He needs healing. His bones are troubled. His soul is also greatly troubled. So this seems to mean that David is suffering both body and spirit, which is how God made us, right? Body and spirit. We're not only spirit, but body and spirit. And David is deeply troubled in both body and spirit. Sometimes, right, sometimes your body is hurt. Maybe you have cancer or something like that. Sometimes your spirit might be troubled for something that's happening in your life. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's everything. And that's the way it is, it seems to be, for David. And he talks about it openly. He's not keeping it hidden. He asks the Lord, even there, you see it there, how much longer, O Lord? In verse 6, we see that he's weary with moaning. It says there, every night, every night, he floods his bed with tears. He drenches his couch with weeping. We can almost imagine in our own imaginations, night after night, David sobbing over his physical and spiritual troubles. Verse 7, his eyes are wasting away from all the grief that he's experiencing and because of all of his foes. Guys, David is not superficial about his troubles. He's honest and so should we be. Jesus made a lot of promises to us as Christians. One of the most poignant is found in John 16, 33, where Jesus says, in this world, you will have many troubles. It doesn't do anybody any good to ignore those troubles or to hide those troubles when they come upon us. In fact, it is part of the healing process to be honest about them. A wise Christian once said long ago, to speak one's heart to a friend, it doubles our joys and cuts our grief in half. Isn't that true? That we share some good news, that they rejoice with you, and that just doubles the joys. And isn't it also true for a good friend when we share our troubles, how they bear a little bit of it too, and it cuts those griefs in half. It is a comfort in and of itself to simply share honestly with no solutions necessarily. Just being allowed to be honest is medicine in and of itself. And all the more when we are honest with the God of whom we trust. And that honesty alone with God is medicine to our souls and even sometimes to our bodies. Christian or non-Christian alike this morning, be honest with God about your struggles, about your griefs, about your sorrows. Be honest with God and with one another. But after being honest... Also labor, secondly, to understand why you are deeply troubled. Secondly, understand why you are deeply troubled. How do Christians that are deeply troubled find relief as the nations rage around us? Well, we're honest with God and our fellow man. And secondly, we begin to work to understand why we're troubled. We don't just let ourselves stay in that grief. And for David, as we look at Psalm 6 here, we find two reasons for why he finds himself in such a deplorable state. We find that he finds himself there because of his own sin and the sin of others. The enemy within and the enemy without seems to be the reason for his struggles. David, friends, does not live in some abstract suffering. He, he's not merely suffering because he's suffering. He doesn't just confess his struggles to God and just wait for God to kind of zap him. He understands why the trouble is in his living room. And guys, so should we. We need to labor to understand why we are deeply 
troubled. And we can see that part of the reason for David's uh, trouble is his own sin. We see that from verse 1. When he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, some of you might ask, well, how does this relate to David's sin? Well, what David is asking for is for God to not give full vent to his justifiable anger. That's what he's asking for. As it says in the very next verse, when he asks for grace, grace, right, is receiving something good that you do not deserve. So David understands that in some way he's partially responsible for the situation that he finds himself in. He recognizes that because he has sinned or rebelled against God in some way, he is like all of us deserving of God's anger and wrath. He wants God to not be as harsh as he could be because of his sin. Maybe another way of saying this is one pastor wrote hundreds of years ago and gave voice to David. He says the meaning is this. Again, giving voice to David. I indeed confess, O Lord, that I deserve to be destroyed and brought to nothing. But as I would be unable to endure the severity of your wrath... Don't deal with me according to what I deserve, but instead pardon my sins by which I have provoked your anger. And let me be clear about something as soon as I say that as well. As Christians, we do not believe that God punishes his children for our wrongs. We as Christians believe that the gospel teaches us that we trust in Christ to be punished on our behalf. That substitutionary atonement. We trust that Christ is punished for us. God is not hovering over the Christian, kind of waiting to get us because we didn't read our Bibles or pray that day. He's not like that. Christians are treated as Christ. Christians are treated as Christ. We're treated as sons, as daughters, right? We're in that state of grace, state of love. However, that doesn't mean God in his loving kindness might not choose to discipline or instruct us in our sinfulness. We learned that from Hebrews 12, 6 to 11. Bit of a longer passage, but I think it's helpful for us this morning. The Lord may choose to discipline us. He says there, Hebrews 12, 6 to 11, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Beside this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so, yes, beloved, it's possible, it's possible that part of your pain and suffering is due to your sin, but God, Christian, is not punishing you. You trust in Christ. He was punished on your behalf. He, he may be using sinful choices as a good father would to teach you so that you and I may enjoy more of the joy of righteousness and more of the satisfaction that we have in Jesus. But that doesn't mean that you can't ask God at the same time to relieve you of that discipline. Again, be honest about it. Ask God to relieve you from that discipline. That's exactly what David does there in verses 2 to 4. 
You can see it there. Be gracious, O Lord. How much longer, O Lord? Turn and deliver my life, O Lord. Guys, be honest with God. And then understand the role that maybe your sin may be playing. Know that God might be doing something, is doing something. But feel the freedom to ask God to relieve it. But sin is not the only thing we need to evaluate in order to understand our sorrows. We also need to understand the sin of our enemies. Sin of our enemies. Our dire circumstances are not arbitrary or meaningless. They are the consequence of either our sins, the Lord's instruction, and or the enemies of the Lord in and around our lives. We can see that clearly in verse 7 there. Take a look at it. Verse 7. My eye wastes away. Why? Because of grief. It grows weak. Why? Because of all my foes. So we see the workers of evil in verse 8 and in verse 10. He looks for satisfaction over his enemies. And when we begin to evaluate why we are suffering so severely, it's important to consider the ways the Lord's enemies, which are the Christian's enemies, are impacting the situation. Sometimes those enemies are impacting us directly. Sometimes it's more indirectly. But here in this passage, it seems as though David's enemies are having a direct impact upon his troubles along with his own sinful choices. Last week, if you recall, back in Psalm 5, We saw the need to pray against our enemies, and here we see more of the same. But what I want you to notice here in this passage is our enemies are not always who we think they are. I say that because of that phrase, workers of evil, is used, the exact same phrase is used of Jesus when he he references uh, the enemies in Matthew 7 to describe people who claim to be followers of Christ, but in reality are deceived. So some of our enemies may pose themselves as angels of light, as it were. Matthew 7, 23, here's Jesus. I never knew you. These are people that claim to do works in the name of Christ. Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Same phrase. So the enemies of David, our enemies, they may be the ones that openly declare war against confessional Christianity, but more often they may be people that claim friendship with the gospel, but in fact are deceived themselves and are in some ways actively working against our lives in Christ, which introduce all kinds of pain and suffering and grief. Think, for example, about how partisan politics has used Christians as a voting block to divide families and churches. Or think back to the way that COVID was pressuring the church and Christian families. I sat in meetings with other pastors that described stories in the life of their church where uh, members were treating themselves worse than non-Christians would treat themselves. Or consider authors who in the name of Jesus write books or blogs and try to convince Christians to move away from clear and historical teachings of Christ. And as a result, cause tremendous grief to families and to churches. I could mention more. I'm sure you could too. And again, none of this is even to mention how clear and present enemies of Christ have intimidated, have imprisoned, and even killed faithful witnesses to Christ. This happens every day in places like Pakistan, North Korea, places of India. Families and churches losing husbands, pastors, friends, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters in the Lord. The enemies of the Lord are numerous and they are powerful and they can cause tremendous grief to people inside the life of the church. But the point in all of this, guys, is, is that there are, there are enemies from within and there are enemies from without. 
And they are often working together to place us under tremendous amounts of trouble that result in pain, body and soul. And by being honest with God and by being honest with ourselves about our enemies within and our enemies without, we can begin to put skin on what is causing that grief. As long as the reason for our sorrows remains undefined, guys, in the abstract, it makes it hard for us to attack it and see it wither away. If you've sat in counseling sessions with me, you heard me use this example a lot. Imagine our storming the beaches of Normandy and not knowing the enemy. Who they, who they are, what they're dressed like, how they act, what do they shoot, where do they shoot from. But when we know who the enemy is and what they act like and where they are, we can know how to attack them. You can see that grief begin to wither. So how do Christians who are troubled find relief as the nations rage around us? We get honest with God, with one another. We seek to understand why we are troubled. And then third, we abide in the Lord. We abide in the Lord. And by abide, I mean to lean into that relationship that we have with the Lord. Lean into it. A branch of a tree abides in the root that has life and then has life. A fish abides in the water and lives. Right? A flower, eggs, and sugar abide with one another to have cake. Christians abide in with the Lord and they find relief amidst their troubles. Jesus says in John uh, fifteen four. abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. He goes on to say verse eight and nine by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples as the father has loved me. So have I loved you abide. He says in my love. This is what David does. He abides in the Lord amidst his sorrows And we see the ways in which he abides in it in three ways. First, we can see once again, and that he knows who God is. Saw this last week. One of the ways he abides in the Lord is by knowing who God is amidst his sorrows. Again, we saw that last week in Psalm 5. Last week you saw that we saw 18 things from Psalm 5. Uh, 18 things that David knew who God was. In this passage, I count eight things. That David knows about God. That David believes about God amidst his struggles. Verse 1, he knows God can get angry against sin. Verse 2, he knows God is gracious and that he heals. Verse 4, he knows God is a deliverer. He also knows God possesses steadfast love. Verse 5, he sees that God is uh, God is worthy of praise. Verse 8, God hears the prayers of his people. Verse 9, he accepts the prayers of his people. Verse 10, he, we see that God is a God of justice. He believes that. Know who God is. A.W. Tozer says that wonderful line, what, you be- what comes to your mind when you believe about, when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's not only true because we need to be in right relationship with the one true God, but more practically, it'll help us know what's true as we're sinking amidst the sorrow. We know what God is true and what God is not. And some of you are going through this now. Some of you are in the midst of sorrow, of grief and difficulty. And maybe a good exercise for you this week would be to go back through and just see how your brothers and sisters of the faith, what they believed about God. Just go back through and do exactly what I did. Just see what it is they're believing about God from the Psalms. Maybe that would be a good exercise for you this week. But maybe some of you are not amidst of grief and sorrow, but you know those days are coming. And maybe some of you need to uh, strengthen your knowledge of God because you know your knowledge of God is thin. And you know, therefore, you're vulnerable to 
wallowing all the more because you don't know who God is amidst that grief and suffering. And so maybe after the service today, go downstairs. There's three books in the bookstall that I would commend to you. Three books in the bookstall. By the way, if you don't have the money to pay, we, we sell those at cost or below cost. If you don't have the money, just take it. <laughs> There's three books down there. If you want to strengthen your knowledge of God so that you can be strengthened amidst the grief and sorrow. Three books down there. Holiness uh, of God by R.C. Sproul is down there. Knowledge of the Holy, tiny little book by A.W. Tozer. And then Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Three great books to strengthen your knowledge of who God is so that you can know who he is amidst that time. And by the way, go and grab one or two others. And maybe the, the two or three of you meet and talk about it and pray together in that mess. But if you're going to find relief from your troubles, you must abide in the Lord by knowing who the Lord is. Guys, there are countless casualties of people that have deconstructed a Christianity that was never Christianity to begin with because it wasn't built on the truth about God. So, beloved, if you are going to find relief, labor to know who God is and isn't. And then the second way we learn to abide in the Lord amidst our grief is by praying to that God. By praying to him. We've been hearing a lot about prayer. Right? It's easy to lose sight of the fact that so many of the Psalms are, in fact, prayers. Just like it's easy sometimes, isn't it, to forget that when we sing, we're praying to God oftentimes. So prayer is breathing. Which is why in order for us to abide in the Lord through our trials and tribulations, guys, we have got to pray. Otherwise, we don't breathe and we die. And David shows us that once again here. He's apparently on the brink of death, drenching his pillow and couch every night. But that doesn't stop him from praying. He's overwhelmed with grief. But it doesn't stop him from prayer. In fact, what the Lord seems to be teaching us here is that pain ought to give way to prayer. It's almost like a bridge of sorts, pain is. And the reason for that is because our pains and our sorrows are revelations, aren't they? That show us we're not God. And so therefore they're pathways because they teach us to trust in the one that is. And so we show our reliance upon God by praying amidst those griefs and asking God to hear us. And so let's do a little bit of that. Let's, let's drill down on David's prayer. We can imagine ourselves being in there as he's grieving. What does he say? How does he pray? How might we pray? Well, we've already addressed his request there in verses 1 to 4 to ask for grace in order to be relieved from any further burdens on account of his own sin. That's instructive, right? But, but take a look at the second half of verse 4. You see it there? He asks for the Lord to turn. That is to remove his fatherly discipline. But notice why. Why does he want the Lord to turn? Stop and think even before you look at Why would you and I ask the Lord to turn his fatherly discipline? If it's me and I ask him to turn his father, fatherly discipline, I'd be going like, Lord, this kind of stinks right now. I want things to be happy and nice. Can you make this stop? That's what I would be saying. I don't know about you guys. That's what I would be doing. But that's not what David prays. Take a look. He asked the Lord to turn to remove his fatherly discipline. You can see it there. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. And he goes on to say, for in death, there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, that means death. In Sheol, who will give you praise? Now, I'm sure some of you read that passage and you had questions about it. He's not saying Christians can't praise God from the dead. What he's asking is for the Lord to save him for the sake of praising the Lord's steadfast love on the earth. That's what he's asking for. 
He understands that if he's die, if he dies from this, he's going to be unable to testify to the world about the Lord and his steadfast love and what he's able to do through that sorrow. In other words, David, in other words, the request of David in prayer is to be saved for the purposes of declaring the greatness of God's steadfast love to the world. That he got him through it and that he's good. I wonder, is that our burden amidst our griefs? Are we often, in a, in a way, yes, wanting the pain to go away, but are we also interested in seeing the Lord be honored and glorified on the other side of that grief? And is that part of our prayer lives? It was for David. And his situation was probably worse than most of ours. And beloved, I realize in the life of this church, we've had to walk through a lot together, haven't we? I've sat with you and looked at you through all different kinds of things. And we've walked together with things with, from enemies within to with, with enemies without that have caused you grief. And I've heard a number of you say through tears, I want God to be glorified in this. I want the church to know that God's good. I've heard you say that. I've come home to my wife on those days and said to her, I want to have a faith like that. Amazing how they, through the tears and the pain and the grief, they say, God's good. I want everybody to know that. Because that's not going to happen in us if we don't learn to abide in the Lord in prayer through the grief. But there's two more things to mention here about prayer. He prays for the deliverance in order that the Lord's steadfast love might be praised in the earth. But also, guys, this is so important. Look at verse 9. David knows that the Lord heard his prayer. And then also, thirdly, he knows the Lord accepts his prayer. We can almost feel David's soul begin to lift here, can't we? Now, we ask the question, why is knowing the Lord hears and accepts our prayers so important amidst our griefs? Why is that? Well, think about it. I shudder to say this because I've done this to my wife more times than I can count. I'm sad to say I confess that to you. But imagine, do you remember the time maybe you're talking to a friend or a neighbor or a spouse and you're sharing something that's important to you and meanwhile they're not looking at you and they're scrolling through Instagram. And then you stop. You get a little frustrated, right? And you say, are you even listening to me? Right? Because you're frustrated because they're not hearing you, right? And then they say back, yes, yes, I am listening to you. And they, and they say, what did I just say? And they list out like the last three words you said, which makes it worse, right? Because they, 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 they were attentive enough to hear your words, but not attentive enough to care. So it makes it even worse. The Lord's not like that. He hears us. The Lord, in the midst of our prayers and our grief, he's not scrolling through Instagram. He's looking at you. And there's something about being heard that is so incredibly healing and encouraging. So, for instance, compare that experience through Instagram, through someone that comes amidst your grief, amidst your sorrows, and sits down next to you, puts their arm around you, or looks you square in the eye and listens to your every word. And they weep with you if you weep. And they give you a hug. They pray with you. Isn't there something healing about that? Something healing in the way that someone just listens to us, hears us, 
Christian, God hears your prayers. Every one of them. I know it doesn't always seem like he does. It often seems like we're talking to the wind sometimes, doesn't it? Which is one of the reasons we can sometimes struggle to pray. But guys, God inspired this psalm, if for no other reason than to communicate to you that he hears your prayers. He hears them. We read in Revelation that they're up in a bowl, as it were. He hears your prayers. He's listening. He's not too busy to listen to you. He's not scrolling on Instagram, half listening to you. No, he's like that friend or that spouse that looks you in the eye and hears every word. Listen, Jesus died to give you that kind of access. He suffered and bled and died for your sin so that those sins could be paid and you could speak directly to God. In your grief, abide in the Lord by praying and know that you will heard and be heard. And not only be heard, your, your prayers will be accepted in Christ. In other words, insofar as it accords with the character of God, you can be confident that the Lord will receive and comply with your request. Now that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out in the same way and the same time frame that you desire. But it does mean that it will be answered in one way or another. You see, when, when God's children pray to the Lord, they are not only praying to one that can hear, they are also praying to one that can hear and respond. That's huge, right? If I was stuck in a hole and a dog came up, you know, we don't have Lassie, right? Y'all don't even know, half, one of my, half of y'all don't even know who Lassie is. But anyway, a dog comes in the hole, I'm sitting in the hole, right? Dog comes up and I say, I'm in a hole, I can't get out. The dog can hear me, but he can't do anything, Right? Or if I know that the fireman's down the road and he has the ability to help me, but he doesn't hear me. God can do both. He can hear and he can respond. He can do something. That's why this whole notion of him hearing our prayers and accepting our prayers is so encouraging. What it does, guys, is when we know and believe that the God of the universe that hears and accepts those prayers in Christ... When we know that, this knowledge alone can introduce relief. Why? Because it begins to insert back into our hearts and minds something that we lose amidst our grief. Hope. Hope gets introduced. I might be stuck in the hole, but if a fireman comes along and he's like, I'll be back. Okay. I feel good, right? Now, maybe maybe a week goes by and I'm like... So you're going to show back up. But right, I know he's able to do something. That's what God's like. God invites our honesty and he supplies our hope. Christianity is the only faith I know of that can do this. There are plenty of people that are going to tell you to be honest, but they don't have any hope to give you. Others are going to want to give you some hope, but they're not going to be honest about the reality of the situation. And in steps Jesus, who is both honest about our trials and tribulations and hopeful about their relief. And he shows us that in the incarnation, shows it in the, in the crucifixion, shows us that in the resurrection, and shows us that in the promise of the soon return. And the way that the Christian accesses that gospel, accesses that power, that hope, is through prayer. Praying that God will be glorified as we learn. Praying while knowing that we will be heard, we are accepted, which then supplies the kind of hope that we need to find relief. But there's one last thing. We need an answer for as the nations are raging and our grief is strong. One more thing we need to know. We need to abide in the Lord. 
We need to abide in the Lord, knowing who God is, praying uh, to the God that hears us and accepts us. And thirdly, we abide in the Lord by third, knowing that our enemies will receive justice quickly. That's, that's big, right? We see that in verse 10. Look, take a look at it. David finds peace in knowing that his enemies will be ashamed and greatly troubled. Now, maybe he means by that that they're going to be see their sin, repent, and give their life to Jesus. Maybe. But we can certainly conclude... That they're being put to shame in a moment there, when he talks about that, indicates that justice will be served to his unrepentant enemies and be served quickly. Served in a moment. In other words, the justice that comes upon them will not only come, but it will come upon them quickly and decisively. Guys, part of the reason some of us have so much grief is because the very same people who have taken so much away from us seem to be experiencing more joy and happiness than we do as Christians, right? And that bothers us, and it should. It's a major theme in the Psalms. But we as Christians must call to mind, brothers and sisters, that we are a moment. That God is forever. Christian, we know something that the non-Christian doesn't. We know that justice will be served to all those who oppose us. We know that justice has already been served for us in Christ on the cross. He's paid for our sin. And because of that, though we are but grass here today, gone tomorrow, we are forever steadfast love in Christ. Though weeping, as the Psalms teach us, may tarry for the night, joy comes in the forever morning when Christ returns. And in a moment... We will see him as he is, and we will be like him and enjoy his eternal praise forever together. But the enemies of Christ, whoever they are, our enemies, whoever they are, insofar as they oppose Christ, they will answer for every little word they uttered. Every evil deed will be answered. Every lie, every murder, everything that should have been never been done, it will be dealt with. And such thoughts, guys, should lead us to relief, though the nation's rage and our grief continues. We Christians know how to sleep, though our pillows be wet with our tears. We've learned to rest because we've learned to trust in Jesus. He promised to make all things new, didn't he? He will do it. The author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross for our sins, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God until the time is full when he will come and he will give justice and he will give it quickly. So how do Christians who are troubled find relief as the nations rage around us? We're honest with God, with one another. We seek to understand why we are troubled. and We abide in the Lord by knowing who the Lord is, by praying to him, by resting in the knowledge that he will make all things right once and for all. And so, beloved Christian, if you are grieving today, rest well tonight. Sleep good. God is king. He hears you. He knows you. He will answer for it. Rest well. God sees. God hears. God knows. God remembers. Take a look at verse 8 as we close. Your Lord has heard the sound of your weeping. That's powerful. Hope is coming. It is as sure as the empty tomb in Jerusalem. And friend, if you are not a Christian, if 
you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Christ alone to be born again to that new and living hope. If you've understood yourself at some point by the power of the Spirit to be one of those workers of lawlessness, turn from sin, trust in Jesus. would love to help you know how to do that. Find hope in Him. And so though the grief goes on, hope comes in the morning. We have reason to believe that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Some of us in this room are deeply grieved. The sorrow continues. Some will have their pillows wet with tears yet again tonight. God, give them hope. Give them peace. Give them joy knowing that you hear the sound of their weeping. And remind them that because of the sufficient work of Christ... All will be made right soon enough. Remind us that in Christ our prayers are heard. Our prayers are accepted. Our enemies will be dealt with. And soon enough we'll arrive on those peaceful shores of the Jordan River. Singing of your steadfast love. Until then. May we be doing as David longs to do. Declaring your steadfast love even amidst our tears. Help us toward that end God because we're weak. But you're strong. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.